0: Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, July 8th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, July 11th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, ladies? Hello. It is going.
1: Welcome back, Emily. Thank you so much. Yeah.
2: And happy belated Thank you. Should we say it dirty thirty? I can't yep. cut it out.
1: <laughs> it is it's just a fact. We all have to live with it. Um, but I feel good. I it's just weird more than anything. Well these days it's a blessing to see thirty, so I'm it's glad true. that you are you had a
0: wonderful birthday and you're back. Thank you, thank you. So how you ladies been enjoying these storms we've been having the past few days?
2: I mean, I when it's so hot. The rain is like a relief, but then it's been so bad today specifically, it's kind of, it makes me very anxious because a lot of, there's like been a lot of bad flooding and people struggling to get home. So I'm not happy about that at all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's scary. The thunder and lightning the other night was like, the whole sky was lit up and the thunder was just so loud, so... Definitely the season for all of this uh, weather stuff. This week, we will be discussing the outcome of the NYC Democratic primary elections, um, Ohio's approval of the License to Discriminate bill, the assassination of the Haitian president, and some climate optimism for our good news segment. So we're going
1: to go ahead and kick off
0: today's episode with our local news. Emily, you're up.
1: All righty. So the NYC Democratic primaries are officially over, and Eric Adams is the winner. On November 2nd, he'll go, up, he'll go head-to-head in the general mayoral election against the Republican primary winner, Curtis Silva. Uh, he's the founder of the Guardian Angels, the volunteer safety patrol network that began in the 1970s. Uh, however, quote, Democrats outnumber Republicans 7-1 to one in New York City, and Adams is by far the favorite to win. Um, And that quote is from an AP news article that I will um, continue to reference. So um, Adams is the current Brooklyn borough president and a former police officer. Uh, According to that AP article by Karen Matthews, Adams won by, quote, appealing to the political center and promising to strike the right balance between fighting crime and ending racial injustice in policing. Uh, It should come as no surprise that he is not uh, pro defunding the police. Quote, Adams is a study in contradictions who at different times has been a defender of Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, a registered Republican, and a Democratic state senator thriving in a world of backroom deals. Adams speaks frequently of his dual identity as a 22-year police veteran and a Black man who endured police brutality himself as a teenager. He said he was beaten by officers at age 15. Uh, If elected, he will be only the second black mayor in the history of New York, the first being David uh, Dinkins, who was elected in 1989 and served until 1993. Uh, As of July 7th, he was leading Catherine Garcia by only about one percentage point, a little more than 8000 votes. uh, But that the, you know, essentially he's already won, like there's um, whatever the numbers are still left to count. That's essentially it. Uh, This was, quote, New York's first major race to use ranked choice voting. And while that was very cool, as we've talked about here on the show, it was also kind of a shit show. Um, Quote, as votes were being tallied on June 29th, election officials bungled the count by inadvertently including 135,000 old test ballots. Erroneous vote uh, tallies were posted for several hours before officials acknowledged the error and took them down. The mistake had no impact on the final outcome of the race. Unfortunately, however, that snafu will likely have a widespread negative impact. Maggie Astor wrote a story for The New York Times titled, uh, Why New York's Election Debacle is Likely to Fuel Conspiracy Theories. Quote, it was a stunning display of carelessness, even from an agency long known for its dysfunction, and the reverberations will continue long after Tuesday evening. Quote, that's because while the mistake was discovered within hours and corrected by the next day, It provided purveyors of right-wing disinformation with ammunition as powerful as anything they could have invented. Quote, the disinformation fueled by New York's mistake may not end up being compelling to Americans who haven't already bought into the lie that the 2020 election was stolen. But it is very likely, especially among New Yorkers, to undermine overall trust in public institutions. And that sort of distrust, distrust creates fertile ground for disinformation to grow. Um, So a little more background on the dysfunction of the New York City Board of Elections. Uh, The New York Times published an article on June 30th uh, and then updated a little bit on July 2nd, titled Inside the Turmoil at the Agency Running Ranked Choice Voting. Quote, New York is the only state in the country with local election boards whose staffers are chosen almost entirely by Democratic and Republican Party bosses. The system is meant to ensure fairness by empowering the parties to watch each other, but for decades, the board in New York City has been criticized for nepotism, ineptitude, and corruption. In recent years, the political appointees who run the board have stumbled again and again. They mistakenly purged about 200,000 people from voter rolls ahead of the 2016 election. They forced some voters to wait in four-hour lines on Election Day in 2018 and they sent erroneous ballots to nearly 100,000 New Yorkers seeking to vote by mail last year. Still, while some lawmakers have suggested reforms, the proposals have failed to gain much traction. The structure of the election board is enshrined in the New York state constitution, so it is hard to change, and political leaders have little incentive to support any reforms because the current system gives them a lot of power. So that is my story. A couple twists and turns in there for sure. Were you guys following um, all the updates about the uh, craziness with the numbers that were coming out last week?
2: Yeah, that was embarrassing. It was really mm-hmm. the BOE. I don't know who the intern was running their social media account, but they basically put up like something typed up on the notes app, like put up a picture of that. It's like, what in the hell? Like they were some kind oh, dang, of like, I pop didn't see star that. or something. Like, yeah.
1: That's wild. (laughs) And what do y'all think of uh, Eric Adams?
0: I kind of expected a shit show just because like everything was just so unclear. Even like we're trying to work the polls and everything, like the communication was really off and it seemed as though like it was just so many distractions, so many things going on. So I had a feeling that it was going to be like that. Um, But now here we are with Eric Adams, which I'm not too keen on. Um, I haven't really seen him do so many great things as Brooklyn borough president, but I mean, the race isn't over. We'll see what happens, I guess.
2: It's not, I'm not really surprised by the outcome, but I'm still disappointed. Um, I feel like there was a real chance for there to be someone elected um, who would bring, well, you know what, let me not say elect this, for someone to become the democratic candidate, because there are still, you know, people that are not Republican or Democrats running for in the general, but um there seemed to be a chance to have some real different options this time. And so to see it sort of coalesce around a centrist and someone who, so all those ads where he's like, I was beaten up by the police. So I decided to become the police. I just was like sick of seeing that. Um, and it, it makes me worry for what's going to come next. Cause I, I, I think it, it's, it's easier in some people's minds when the person kind of fits a certain profile to understand that they can be harmful. But I do think it's often easy to be like, Oh, like, well, he's a black guy and he says X, Y, Z, it must be somewhat progressive and that's just not the case. Yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens. At least there were a lot of um, down ballot victories of different types of politicians, but yeah, it's, it wasn't what I was hoping for.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of progressive um candidates running this year and they got like very far actually and, and female candidates as well. Um yeah, I, I think I agree. I'm not surprised that he um was the winner i mean not only is it centrist it's like it's name recognition too right like he is a big name the city is the borough president of Brooklyn. right yeah absolutely. and that goes a long way He's
2: known it's like there's people way. that are like
1: incumbents
2: that do nothing forever yeah. but because people just are like they know who it is they just automatically get like huge numbers of votes
1: yeah like it's like the incumbent thing, right? like the incumbent is so much more likely to win reelection um just because of name recognition.
0: I'm always leery of people who get in who stay in office forever because of their political ties and their control over the money around elections like I think this was a definitely a step in the right direction, the way they attempted to do it, but they it's almost like they weren't even ready. they didn't even know what they were doing, so <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost like part of the downfall could be connected to that, but also just this man is so connected, like who was really going to, you know, be a challenger for him.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, it's, it seems like even it's like the institution itself, the Board of Elections, like seems like it's not ready for anything. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I guess I've never looked into like I remember all of those like that bullshit happening or people getting purged from the voter rolls and like all the... um. It like inaccurate ballots that went out last year, um, but didn't really like put two and two together. And and I think reading that, you know, the institution, the way the institution is run, like politically, like that um, between Democrats and Republicans, was really interesting. And I think pretty eye opening. Well, I guess
0: we'll see what happens in November. So definitely stay abreast to the news and see what's happening, folks. It's not over yet. Well, Layla's making her um, debut today I think she's trying to announce the next song <laughs> But I'm going to go ahead and um, bring in The first track for the day It's called Tidal Wave and it's by Jomza featuring Aerie Lennox We'll be right back
3: Lay-lay It's been hard to sleep You live my dreams I've been drinking
0: Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And that artist's name, I think I might have messed it up. So it's actually pronounced Neomza. And the track Tidal Wave features Airy Linux. So I have a quick update from the station. Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by PharmaGear, offering little or no cost medical braces. For more information, you can call 844-598-6639. So we're going to go ahead and jump into our national news segment. Jasmine, you're up.
2: So um, this news article was written by Hannah Murphy. It came out July the 7th on Rolling Stone. The title of the article is Ohio allows doctors to deny LGBTQ healthcare on moral grounds. In the latest state level swing at LGBTQ healthcare access, Ohio will now allow medical providers to refuse to administer any medical treatment that violates their moral, ethical, or religious beliefs. The language was buried in a 700-page document of last-minute amendments to the state's two-year budget bill, which Ohio Governor Mike DeWine approved last Thursday. The provision allows anyone providing medical care, from doctors and nurses to researchers and lab techs, and anyone paying for that care, namely insurance providers, the, quote, freedom to decline to perform, participate in, or pay for any health care service, which violates the practitioners, institutions, or payers' conscience, as informed by their moral, ethical, or religious beliefs. The exemption is limited to conscious-based objections to a particular health care service. It goes on to say that the provider is responsible for providing all appropriate health care services other than the particular health care service that conflicts with the medical practitioners beliefs or convictions until another medical practitioner or facility is available. But the bill was overwhelmingly opposed by the state's medical community. The implications of this policy are immense and could lead to situations where patient care is unacceptably compromised. Read a letter to budget negotiators signed by the Ohio Hospital Association, the Ohio Children's Hospital Association, the Ohio State Medical Association, and the Ohio Association of Health Plans. Governor DeWine could have struck the language while signing the rest of the budget into law, but declined to do so, despite issuing 14 other line-item vetoes. State and national LGBTQ advocates started sounding the alarm in June when the language was introduced, saying that it will prevent LGBTQ people from accessing the health care they need, With this newly enacted language in place, a medical provider could refuse to prescribe PrEP to an LGBTQ patient looking to reduce their risk of contracting HIV or refuse to provide gender-affirming care to trans and non-binary patients or puberty blockers to transgender minors. Equality Ohio called it a, quote, license to discriminate. And human rights campaign, President Alfonso David said that it jeopardizes the medical well-being of more than 380,000 LGBTQ people in Ohio. Governor DeWine has insisted that this provision won't change the standard of care in Ohio. This is not a problem, he told a local news station. If there's other things that maybe a doctor has a problem with, it's worked out. Somebody else does those, those things referring to a loosely written clause that requires that the medical professional, when possible, attempt to transfer the patient to a colleague who will provide the requested procedure, as long as making that referral doesn't violate their conscience as well. So, I mean, what is then the point? But even if the medical professional does attempt to make that referral... A quarter of Ohio's population lives in rural counties where LGBTQ-friendly medical care is sparse. And for queer elders living in long-term care facilities, options are even slimmer. Local advocates have also called foul on lawmakers' move to insert the clause last minute into the state's massive two-year, 2,400-page budget bill. They know that they couldn't pass this on its merits as a standalone bill, because literally no one is asking for this to be passed, Dominic Detweiler, a public policy strategist for Equality Ohio, told the Columbus Dispatch. It's a strategy that Ohio lawmakers have attempted more than once this year, but it's the first time it's paid off. Earlier in June, when writing a bill that allowed college athletes to profit off of their own image, lawmakers tried to add a provision banning trans athletes from school sports. DeWine did not sign that legislation and instead drafted an executive order that mimicked the original text of the bill but omitted the anti-trans portion. Then, just days later, he signed the budget bill into law with the new health care statute. More than 250 anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced in state legislatures in 2021, a trend that advocates have called an unprecedented war on the LGBTQ community, breaking the previous record in 2015. Um, And this is um, a section from an article written uh, today on July the, the 8th on the Advocate about the same issue. Um, it mentions the different medical groups that oppose the amendment, but the Catholic Medical Association issued a press release praising it, saying the support of leaders like Governor DeWine will protect healthcare professionals and patients for years to come. Conscious freedom is a civil right which must be protected so that medical professionals have the freedom to care for patients from a scientific moral, and ethical standpoint, said the organization's president, Dr. Michael Parker. So yeah, like very depressing news. Um, If you are in Ohio and you are in need of an LGBTQ-friendly physician or some support, there is a site called um, LGBT Cleveland, and their website is lgbtcleveland.org. And if you go to the tab for resources, there's different options for, like, legal advocacy, crisis hotlines, and other um, resources you can look up in the area. Well,
0: this sucks um, that anybody would even consider limiting healthcare access to anyone at this day and age for any reason. I've never really heard of this. I am from Ohio, but I've been away for a really long time, but um I've definitely heard of some of the madness that is divine Devo- and the way that he governs and kind of backhandles things to end up like this.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that story, Jasmine. I um it really does feel like there's there's a lot you you mentioned in your story how many bills are being passed related to trying to regulate um lgbtq and queer and trans health and bodies in this country and it is it's extremely overwhelming like i feel like it's it's happening with increased frequency um just like you said it is factually it's not just a feeling um and it is it is really sad and we need to keep um well not just talking about it but also think you know sharing resources like you said jasmine like there are people who are really going to suffer um and I mean, this country loves denying healthcare to people. <laughs> um, if you can't afford it, you can't get health care. Um, you know, people use it as a weapon.
2: It really is like a it's it's a murderous mentality. It's like I know I say this about a lot of things, but it, it, there's so many issues where marginalized groups are sort of like a canary in the coal mine and because there's a lot of people in the mainstream that feel like well that's not really my problem they don't really pay attention to how serious it is until it does start to affect you because the way that this is written someone could very easily be like well i'm not going to supply you with birth control i feel that because you're a certain size like you deserve for xyz to happen to you you know like how can you argue that that's not a sincerely held belief if all you need is just you know the profession the professional has to say well this is what i believe like the this like super conservative like very patriarchal like right-wing way of thinking becoming so powerful like it's all it's always been powerful but just seeing this like relentless assault on everyone else's rights it's it can be very overwhelming and it's i'm scared for the people in that state
1: and it really i mean the medical profession you know is supposed to be based in the idea of do no harm um so this really feels like a slap in the face to that at its core um and and you're absolutely right about, um, you know, this be opening a lot of very scary doors. I mean, we already know that there's plenty of um, attempts to limit access to birth control, um, other basic health care in this country, all that Hobby Lobby stuff. Um, and it seeping beyond just the insurance level and into the actual medical profession um, is that it does it, it is the next level.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of this stems from the fact that healthcare is never considered to be a human, right? Um, you've heard this language in a lot of other countries um, that where health care, um, specifically for young girls and women, uh, is denied. They're denied access to uh, birth control and just uh, overall general things to... Um, help them develop as they're young. But when we start considering healthcare and access to healthcare as a human right, all of a sudden everybody's included. But the fact that we haven't been able to arrive there, even after a global pandemic, it really shows that, you know, the powers that be, they really don't care about every citizen. Not like they ever did, but it's, it's really screwed up because now I think it's so clear that the health disparities in this country are a major problem that is systemically discriminating against and perpetuating problems of poverty, racism, prejudice, and just overall uh, people not being able to live a healthy life because they don't have access to the care they need. Uh, At the end of the day, all you have is your health. And if you can't make it better or, you know, learn how to do that or get the access to the resources, the medicine, or even just someone to tell you what you may be doing wrong. Um, It's really scary. It it really pushes people into the dark about their healthcare and not, you know, it's almost like it's a a tedious task to go to the doctor and the dentist because one, you can't afford it. Two, you're going to hear some shit that you can't handle. And then three, you don't even know if you're going to be treated fairly. So people crawl under rocks and they don't go and they don't use it because they feel overwhelmed right, yeah. you know they don't understand their their policies and the way these companies are set up saying oh you get this health care you're going to pay all this money what does this health care really do for me when i really need it
2: yeah it really is it's 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 deadly you know because if you can't get it's like if if the first stop is to like get some type of like affirming like care so that you can be happy and healthy, and you are blocked from getting that, it just snowballs into so many other avoidable problems. And I'd also like to say um, with medicine, and I, I think that there are some professions that there's sort I don't know if you call it like a halo effect or what, but people just sort of assume that people are in those professions out of the goodness of their heart. There are people that go into medicine, into education, into law enforcement, whatever, who defi- who have like agendas that are openly like hostile and like bigoted. And some of them go into those professions knowing that they have that kind of control over people. I mean, there was just a law. um, Let me not say a law, but I believe in California recently, they decided to try to pay reparations to people who suffered under um, eugenicist laws there. You know, that was a mindset like these people don't deserve to have children. And that's my belief. So I'm going to impose that on them. And it was legal up through like the 70s. So, you know, just it's it's really a shame, but you can't go into these situations thinking like, oh, like, well, a good doctor, wouldn't it? There's a lot of people that, yeah, you might assume that they're a good person or whatever, but you don't know like how they might treat you versus someone who doesn't look like you, who presents different, really scary times.
0: Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for sharing that story Jasmine Um, this is really unfortunate and please people reach out um, share the story check out our social media for more information and continue the conversation as usual because we must advocate for one another at all times no matter what so we're going to go ahead and hop into our next music break before getting into our world news and good news story this is Bob Marley and the Wailers with No Woman No Cry we'll be right back Welcome back to Objection to the Rule. And now we will hop right into our world news story. So information for this story was gathered from an article in New York Times. The author is Johnny Diaz. And the other um, article was on the BBC, who has been making updates to this story um, every couple of hours. So during a nighttime attack on July 7th, a group of assassins fatally shot President Juvenel Moise in Haiti and wounded his wife. Martin Moisey and a private residence on the outskirts of the capital, Port au Prince. The assassination has rocked the nation, stoking fear and confusion among the residents and the Haitian diaspora about what is to come. The assassins charged into their residence after 1 a.m. in what officials described as a well planned operation, and it, it has been stated in many of the articles that some of the foreigners slash attackers were speaking in Spanish. An American citizen is among the six people who have been detained thus far, Haitian officials said on Thursday, adding to their assertions that foreigners had been involved in this assault. The ambassador, Mr. Edmund, described the assailants as well-trained professionals, killers, and commandos. The American suspect is of Haitian descent and has been identified as James Solange's, Um, said the Haitian minister of elections, Mathias Pierre, two other Haitian officials described Mr. Solange as a resident of South Florida arrested on Wednesday during the initial manhunt security forces engaged in a chaotic shootout late Wednesday with a group of people who they described as suspects, though they did not immediately offer evidence linking them to the attack officers killed four in the group and took two into custody Haitian police chief Leon Charles said that five vehicles that might have been used in the attack have been seized, but several of them had been burned by civilians. So now a power struggle between the two competing prime ministers has further further fueled the tensions. In the hours after the killing, the country's interim prime minister, Claude Joseph, said he was in charge taking command of the police and the army. Mr. Joseph has declared a two-week state of emergency, which allows for the banning of gatherings and the use of the military for police police roles, along with other extensions of executive power. The UN Security Council is set to hold a closed-door meeting later on Thursday. It has condemned the assassination, calling all parties to remain calm to avoid further instability. World leaders have also condemned the killing Uh, Pope Francis went on record saying that this has been a heinous murder. Um, I think the biggest fact right now is actually who is going to take over. Uh, Questions are emerging now over whether Mr. Joseph is the rightful person to act as prime minister. Just days before his death, Mr. Moisey had appointed a new prime minister, Ariel Henry, who was expected to be sworn in this week. Mr. Henry has said that Mr. Henry has said he should be in charge of the government, so the two of them are going back and forth. Uh, Adding to the troubles, Haiti, a parliamentary democracy, has no functioning parliament. There are currently only 10 sitting senators out of 30. The terms of the other 20 have expired. The entire lower house is now no longer sitting because the representative's terms expired last year. And the head of the nation's highest court, which would have been next in line to help bring order, died of COVID-19 in June. So as you, as we all know, Haiti has a really troubled past. And as of right now, uh, the future is really, really uncertain. Um, Thoughts, feedback on this tragedy, ladies?
2: Well, I know, you know, he wasn't, from everything that I read about him, like he seemed like a pretty bad dude, but... I am always concerned about what other powers might do as far as intervention when you see a head of state killed. So um yeah, I mean I I'm I'm not particularly, you know, like I, he had a family and everything, you know, that he's no longer with. Um but however you feel about him as a leader, the fact that he's now left like this power vacuum, it makes me very anxious for what like other nations might try to move in and do or even like when you have a state of emergency declared and like the military getting new powers like that's very scary so I'm you know really hoping for like as peaceful a resolution as can happen but like very anxious.
1: Yeah that sort of instability like I mean that instability happening right now must be very scary for everyone in the country, um, let alone like coming from such a violent incident. Um, Yeah. I just, I um, hope that some sort of um, peaceful um, stability for lack of better, better word um, comes soon.
2: Yeah, like I was reading about people were describing um, like just sending one person out to get food and come back because people are afraid to be outside of their homes, Mm -hmm. you know, and people feeling like if the head of the country isn't safe in their home, like how safe am I going to be? Right. So, yeah, like I, I know, like I noticed a lot of people like in Haitian Twitter, like, being like very worried about what's to come now. And I I don't blame them. Like the last time that their head of state was assassinated, um, the US invaded and occupied them for many years.
3: Mm.
2: So, you know, you don't want to see a repeat of that type of thing, but it's hard to really know like what to do um, or how to support people on the ground right now.
0: Yeah. Yes, I'm always concerned um, when there is issues like this in Haiti because not only has the country have a long history of being prone to uh, prone to humanitarian crisis, but also to um, environmental crisis. Um, obviously, they have you know hurricanes and storms and things that they're still recovering from that they never fully recover from in the past. So you know we're approaching hurricane season. Um, the weather has been very active. So, you know, I'm definitely praying for the people in Haiti because who knows what can happen at any given day when it's not safe to be where you can't get away from. Like, where else will you go? Um, A lot of instability hits every aspect of life there from the food shortages and, you know, uh, the infrastructure often has issues when things like this happen. So it's a very scary time to be there when you don't feel safe and you really just don't know what's next.
2: Yeah, and like we I would also encourage people to keep an eye out on what's happening with deportations right now because these are the types of situations that people unfortunately have to worry about being sent back into um when they're, you know, immigrants in this country, so there's that. Um, there's also we talked about uh, President Moise a couple weeks ago. I think during our Father's Day episode, and there were some resources listed, like to learn more about Haiti. Um, I believe a lot of them have been updated in the wake of what's happening now. So you can check our Facebook page and our Instagram for, um, like, to refresh your memory of what some of those links and resources are. Like to hear from. Haitians themselves about what's going on, like, what's the background. Um, And yeah, their last president who was assassinated happened in July of 1915. So we're almost coming up on the anniversary of that. And it led to Woodrow Wilson sent the U.S. Marines to Haiti, and they occupied from 1915 to 1934. So, you know, a lot of people have a memory of like what the impacts of those interventions have been. So let's just hope that it doesn't repeat itself now.
0: Absolutely. Um, our prayers are with the people of Haiti and just really hoping that um, they're able to just get something situated so they can get some level of stability back to their country. All right, guys. So we definitely need some good news. Emily, what you got for us today?
1: Alrighty, so uh, the news has been extremely bleak recently as far as climate change goes. Let alone all the other things we've been talking about. Um, and I stumbled across uh, an essay on the Guardian's website while I was sort of panic googling for any information that didn't single signal uh, doomsday is around the corner. Um, and I, this essay is from May of this year, and it's by Rebecca Solnit, uh, who's the author of Men Explain Things to Me, and she's one of my, my favorite writers. Uh, the essay is titled, Dare We Hope? Here's My Cautious Case for Climate Optimism. Um, so I just wanted to share some highlights that helped to soothe my psyche, because uh, maybe for someone out there, um, it'll do the same for you. Uh, so, quote, three things matter for climate chaos and our response to it the science reporting on current and potential conditions, the technology offering solutions, and the organizing which is shifting perspectives and policy. Each is advancing rapidly. The science mostly gives us terrifying news of more melting, more storms, more droughts, more fires, more famines. But the technological solutions and the success of the organizing to address the largest of all crises have likewise grown by leaps and bounds. For example, ideas put forth in the Green New Deal in 2019, seen as radical at the time, are now the kind of stuff President Biden routinely proposes in his infrastructure and jobs plans. It's not easy to see all the changes. You have to be a wonk to follow the details on new battery storage solutions or the growth of solar power in cheapness, proliferation, efficiency, and possibility, or new understanding about agricultural and soil management to enhance carbon sequestration sequestration. Um, You have to be a policy nerd to keep track of the countless new initiatives around the world. They include recently the UK committing to end overseas fossil fuel finance in December, the EU in January uh, deciding to discourage all further investments into fossil fuel-based energy infrastructure projects in third countries, and the US making a less comprehensive but meaningful effort this spring to curtail funding for overseas extraction. In April, oil-rich California made a commitment to end fossil fuel extraction altogether, if by a too generous deadline. A lot of these policies have been deemed both good and not good enough. They do not get us to where we need to be, but they lay the foundation for further shifts, and like the Green New Deal, many of them seemed unlikely a few years ago. Uh, Quote, the organization Carbon Tracker, whose reports are usually somber reading, just put out a report so stunning, the word encouraging is hardly adequate. In sum, current technology could produce a hundred times as much electricity from solar and wind as current global demand. Prices on solar continue to drop rapidly and dramatically, and the land required to produce all this energy would take less than is currently given over to fossil fuels. It is a vision of a completely different planet because if you change how we produce energy, you change our geopolitics for the better and clean our air, renew our future. The report concludes, uh, quote, the technical and economic barriers have been crossed and the only impediment to change is political. Those barriers seemed insurmountable at the end of the last millennium. One of the things that's been uh, that's long been curious about this crisis is that the amateurs and newcomers tend to be more alarmist and defeatist than the insiders and experts. When the climate journalist Emily Atkin calls first time, uh, I'm sorry, what the climate journalist Emily Atkin calls first time climate dudes Put forth long, breathless magazine articles, best-selling books, and films, announcing that it's too late and we're doomed, which is another way to say we don't have to do a damn thing, which is a way to undermine the people who are doing those things and those who might be moved to do them. The climate scientist Michael Mann takes these people on. He calls them inactivists and doomists in his recent book *The New Climate Wars*, which describes the defeatism that has succeeded outright climate denial as the greatest as the great obstacle to addressing the crisis. He echoes what Carbon Tracker asserted, writing, the solution is already here. We just need to deploy it rapidly and at massive scale. It all comes down to political will and economic incentives. The climate scientist Diana Liverman shares man's frustration. She was part of the international team of scientists who authored the 2018 House Earth Study, whose conclusions were boiled down by the media into we have 12 years. Quote, that we cannot see all the way to the transformed society we need does not mean it is impossible. We will reach it not by one great leap, but by a long journey step by step. If we say how impossible our current reality might have been, might have seemed 20 years ago, that solar would be so cheap, that Scotland would get 97% of its electricity from renewables, that fossil fuel corporations would be in free fall. We can trust that we can could move forward, uh, could move toward an even more transformed and transformative future and that it is not a set destination, but for better or worse, what we are making up as we go. Each shift makes more shifts possible, but only if we go actively toward the possibilities rather than passively into the collapse. And that is the good news for the week. I hope that um, it's, it's less news and more just a shift in thinking, um, but I really needed to read that this week. So
2: yeah, for sure. Like, there's um one of the climate writers that I like, her name is Kendra Pierre-Louis, Louis, or Louis, um, and she, I think she retweeted someone who was basically saying that, clim- like, being defeatist about the climate is the new version of, like, climate denial, because it's not like people don't know what needs to be done. And it could start happening tomorrow. But if you have enough people convinced that there's no point, then it's not going to happen. So, yeah, like it is um, it is important to balance like very real, you know, facing what's going on and not closing your eyes to it, but to also like balance that out with like, okay, so what can be done about it? What am I, what am I going to do to contribute to the solution instead of just sort of throwing your hands up and being like, oh, well.
1: Yeah, totally. I remember the last couple of years seeing articles being like, um, is it stupid to be hopeful about climate change? And like, what if we all stop pretending that we can avoid doomsday? And, um, to hear, to read that the actual experts don't feel that way. And to like kind of get this perspective that there's actually these like, there's just these writers out there that like, you know, I mean, it's their job. It's and to, to publish articles that will be read and alarmist headlines and things like that, get those sorts of clicks. And to understand that um, that's sort of the, the framework we are within right now when it comes to like the intensity of the news all the time Um, it made me feel a lot better. That like, okay, no, it's not stupid to be hopeful.
2: Yeah, and it, it does feel like not just with climate change, but with all of these issues that we talk about that are very heavy, the opposition wants you to believe that there's no point in you trying. Like they want you to feel like you should just give up. So it is like a way to resist that is starting out with your mentality that a different world is possible and going forward, like with that belief, because otherwise, like, you you know, you're playing into what benefits, you know, the billionaires that are profiting off of destroying the earth.
0: That's right. So definitely keep encouraging. And, you know, you really do have to look for the positive news out there because we're so used to hearing so many daunting things, but we can't give up on climate change until it becomes a serious issue for the people that make decisions in this life. And we have to remember that there are strides that have been made, but there's definitely more room for that. So we can't be dismal. We got to be forthcoming and positive. Definitely. All right, folks, well, we made it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of objection to the rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or wherever you get your iTunes podcasts. Listen up next for more independent Brooklyn media. I'm going to play you out with our final track of the day. This is Childish Gambino with It Feels Like Summer. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you next week. Or Monday. (laughs) And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.
3: Are
4: fun. I feel like
3: I feel like summer. I feel